Welcome to Make a Mixtapes. I'm Tom, and today we talk about building the coolest products on the internet. Josh McMillan is the CTO of Contact, a simple model booking platform that's disrupting not only the way talent is sourced and booked, but how fairly they're paid and compensated. We cover how his time at brands like Deliveroo shaped him into the software engineer and product creator he is today, what goes into leading a team of developers and product designers, and how to make sure they develop professionally when joining any startup. We also talk about his work at Poolside.fm, one of my favorite apps on the internet, and how they landed on the unique and delightful aesthetic it's well known for today. This is a great episode for anyone who's looking to expand the engineering and product building capabilities at their company, or generally looking to lead a team and develop them into being the best talent that they can be. So do enjoy. Josh, I'd love to kind of touch upon what you've been building at Contact and Poolside. But first, I'd love to hear about kind of what got you into software engineering and how some of those early roles, and I know you've had quite a few by the looks of it, how they kind of helped you to become the software engineer and the product builder that you are today. Yeah, so I guess I started building software when I was a teenager, basically. So I don't know if you ever played the game Habbo Hotel. <laughs> I did, yes. Yeah, but back in the day, there was like a whole community of people who were building like fan sites for that, basically. And it was basically just like a bunch of teenagers who were working together to like design and build stuff, age like 14, 15. And yeah, so I was kind of part of that community. And interestingly, like there's quite a few people who've come out of that community who now do this as well, like Marty Bell, who also works on Poolside was also kind of part of that kind of group of people. But yeah, so that, that's kind of how it all started for me, like probably when I was like 14, 15, just sort of dabbling around in code. Obviously, I didn't really know what I was doing, but I thought I was amazing. In reality, probably not the case. And then, yeah, so then when I was 16, I got a job at like a very, very small software development agency, basically. So they were building like, I don't know if you remember them, but like Facebook tab apps, which were... I do, yeah, yeah. yeah which was like kind of my first exposure to commercial software development, if you like. And, you know, I worked there for a few years. It was, it was great, great fun. And then I kind of then went and worked for like a startup studio kind of thing, which was really, really where I started to kind of get exposure to the whole kind of like early product development lifecycle, right? And trying to build products from scratch. And that really kind of sparked an interest, I think. And since then, yeah, like I've largely worked for kind of a mixture of startups and slightly larger businesses. I worked for Delivery for a little while, who are obviously not really a startup anymore, having just IPO'd. But yeah, Wonderbly, which was formerly called Lost My Name, he made children's books. I've done some work for the Beano as well in like a kind of like small incubatory style kind of startup environment. They wanted to build a new kind of digital platform in. Yeah. And then basically over the years, I've kind of like gained more and more software development experience, all that kind of thing. And then obviously joined contact the CTO about two years ago now. In fact, two years ago to the day, funnily enough. Oh, no way. Well, happy anniversary. Thanks, man. <laughs> awesome, man. That's interesting that you started off in the Habbo world because I yeah. definitely played around when I was a teen as well. Were you part of like the uh, the scripting crew that did all those gnarly quote-unquote hacks where they changed their hair color to bright green and stuff like that? Or nah, was it all I very was, legit? 
I was far too far too scared of the law, which in reality, you know, to do that kind of thing. But yeah, like it was kind of nuts. There was like a there was like a whole community of, of basically kids building like fully featured websites, which were in some cases were like quite sophisticated, which is kind of wild, really. I probably stumbled upon those sites back in the day, actually, because I was yeah. I, I was thirteen or fourteen. I was proper into have a hotel back in the day. <laughs> Blast from the past, there. What did you build with Bino then? Was that like um, an app or something? When you say it was a you know came from an incubator. So basically, the Bino is obviously like a comic which has been knocking around for I don't know something like seventy five years or something, and. Obviously, I think, so I worked with them probably about five, four or five years ago now. And at the time, comic sales are kind of, you know, obviously becoming a diminishing thing, right? Like the amount of people who go into a newsagent and buy like a physical comic is, you know, less of a thing. And so they, they basically, they started this new company to start using like all of the, you know, IP, like, you know, if you imagine like Dennis the Menace and all that jazz, basically start, start using those in other forms. So like they obviously have like a TV show and other things like that. But the main thing that I worked on was basically building this whole kind of Beano.com situation, which was basically BuzzFeed for kids was the kind of brief. And, you know, it's still going. It does quite well. So it's like it's a website. There's an app which goes alongside it. And, yeah, like it's just like sort of listicles and quizzes and that kind of thing. And, yeah, it kind of like gets that Beano brand and that voice effectively in front of, you know, maybe a, a generation of kids who wouldn't pick up a comic, but like would spend a lot of time in front of an iPad. Yeah, so kind of following the uh, the BuzzFeed editorial style with which yeah. be no character you quizzes and stuff like that. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, it's not highbrow stuff, but you know. <laughs> but it's perfect for kids. That's the important thing, right? How was working with Deliveroo back in the early days then? Because, like you just mentioned, recently IPO'd, but I'm guessing at the time it was very much a startup. Do you, yeah? What were your experiences like there? And did you learn anything that's kind of helped you to build the products that you're working on today? So I think. Like by the time that I joined Deliveroo, I joined in a couple of years ago. So, but by that point, it was like a, a fairly established tech organization, right? Like I think there was probably about 150, 200 people in that tech team. So, yeah, it's large. And actually, like I think the thing which I learned, which I kind of apply in my job now, is actually more on the kind of like team management and management side of things. Because like Deliveroo had like well-structured processes for doing you know, like line management of people and making sure that people have a good time at work and, you know, things like progression frameworks and all this kind of thing, which seems really dry, right? But so many like really small startups don't have that thing. And I think, you know, it's one of the reasons why quite often people can feel frustrated at startups and, you know, startups can fail to hire, you know, people who aren't white men, for example, because like there's not the kind of, infrastructure and systems in place to operate like a larger organization to do like proper performance reviews to know your place within an organization and that kind of thing so the product development side of things you know is obviously very interesting because deliveries at a scale which isn't which you know most startups aren't so like there's all those considerations there but i think like what i actually found most interesting is the process and the the actual kind of management side of it if that makes sense yeah that's fascinating man i'm guessing that you lead a team of engineers at contact now then right yeah so i lead a mixture of like product designers product managers and engineers and also like one data analyst so yeah (laughs) Amazing. So how do you go about building those processes then, especially around things like career progression? Because like you said, I've worked with startups before and, 
yeah, things can be scrappy, but I think by thinking about these early on is super important. Yeah. What do those, yeah, what do those frameworks look like for you? So, like, I think the most important thing is to just be clear in terms of, like, the roles that you have in the business. And that doesn't mean, like, you know, you've got to come up with all these job titles and this kind of thing. But it's, like, knowing that, like, when you're interviewing someone, you've got a way of basically saying, okay, like, this is the job description that we're looking for. This is the amount of money that we're going to pay someone in this role. This is, you know, how when we interview this person, we're going to score their performance in that interview, that kind of thing. It's like when you're hiring someone, you've got those processes, it kind of removes all the A, bias, and B, like random salaries that people sometimes end up negotiating. So like the way that we've built things in contact is that we have like effectively like a career progression framework or like a ladder basically where you know, you've got all the different job titles for a different roles. So let's say you've got engineer, you've got junior software engineer, software engineer, senior software engineer, or whatever. And, you know, you'll have a bunch of attributes about what makes that person that level. So, you know, that could be around like mastery, i.e., you know, their, their level of competence in being a software engineer and, you know, their skill level and that kind of thing. Or it could be around how they communicate, how they influence other people, et cetera, et cetera. And like having those role definitions clearly defined and also like the amount of money that someone gets paid on that, like in order to do that role, right, really removes like a lot of the kind of structural ambiguity that you get in early stage teams. Because I feel like, you know, if sure, like having a totally flat organization is fine, but also it results in people very, very quickly getting frustrated in terms of like they don't know, like, okay, I've been here for a year. Like what what are like my next steps in terms of like moving upwards, you know? Yeah, and I guess that certainly helps to reduce turnover. That's a really fascinating approach of doing it. Do you sell the long-term vision during that interview process to show, like, this is what roles in the future could look like and this is how you could develop within the company too? Yeah, exactly. So, like, we've not done it yet, but something which we want to do pretty soon is basically just make all of this information public. So, like, you know, if you're interviewing with us, you can say, like, okay, like, here's, like, my you know, five-year career progression in this company, right, in terms of, like, where I could go. And, yeah, like, you know, it's something which people find enormously valuable, I think. Like, something which we we started putting in, like, our job ads recently was, like, okay, in, like, the first 30 days, you're going to do this. In the first three months, you're going to do this. In the first year, you're going to do this. And, like, just giving people some sort of, like, plan for effectively, like, what their first year of work at a company might look like and, you know, the promotion opportunities at the end of it or, like, you know, whatever, you know, it's been like massively valuable. And like people have actually turned around to us and been like, yeah, like that's like a real reason that we applied for this job, right? Because, you know, obviously acquiring particularly engineering talent for like a small startup is very, very difficult. So like any kind of competitive advantage we can give ourselves is massively useful. Absolutely. And you've done it in a way that you've kind of thought outside the box. Those frameworks, I think are, are super fascinating, especially for me, because um, even though, my agency is not hiring engineers like the process is still very much applicable where did you come up with these these kind of processes and these frameworks was it just kind of like trial by fire through working at places like Deliveroo pretty much yeah I mean so like there are a lot of organizations that have these frameworks public basically so you know ours is basically like a hybrid of maybe like five or six other ones that I've taken things which I think are applicable to our organization so yeah, like Monzo has a really good one, for example. Farewell has, you know, pretty good ones. There's there's lots of organizations who make these things public. Some of them are not so great. But I think like 
on the whole, like just having something like that is, is pretty useful. I think like, you know, the original concept is it's like, it's a fairly Silicon Valley style idea, right? Like I, I think like this whole concept of laddering and that kind of thing. I mean, I don't know where it originally came from, but like at delivery, it was definitely influenced by Facebook effectively. So yeah, I don't know. You can, it's like a smorgasbord, I suppose. You can take the bits that do work for you and discard the rest. Yeah, exactly. The stuff that you're building at Context seems super fascinating, and it's kind of the reason I decided to reach out to you, because I find startups that are disrupting something incumbent or quite old school to be super interesting. And that's what you guys are doing with you know, the traditional model industry. And it seems like it's a marketplace of sorts. I'd love to hear about, you know, how did the idea come about? And uh, yeah, what is the core problem you guys are aiming to solve there? Sure. So Contact started life probably about two and a half, three years ago now as like a traditional modeling agency. So Reuben Selby, who's like the original founder, basically ran an organization called Cortex, who were doing like creative production for stuff. And as part of that, he... So like, hey, I know a bunch of models. I can maybe start representing some models, getting them work, et cetera, et cetera. And so he founded Contact as like your bog standard modeling agency, right? And as part of that, like he started to realize that like, what an enormous faff the entire process of booking models and, you know, providing a good experience to models and all this kind of thing was with the existing kind of technology that's available. So about two years ago, Ruben and I sat down and we went through all this kind of stuff and he came up with this idea in terms of like basically building this entire thing to be digital. So at the moment, the way that it basically works, like let's say you want to book a model is you might go to like five, 10 different modeling agencies with a brief, be like, Hey, you know, can you get me some models to fit, you know, this shoe shoot that we've got for Nike or whatever. And it's all super manual. So like, it's going to be loads of phone calls, loads of emails, like, you generally don't really know what kind of talent availability is up front. You don't know anything really beyond like maybe like a set of headshots or whatever. And it's very, very manual, very, very like lots and lots of back and forth. And it basically just takes up a lot of time for people booking models. So what we basically decided to build was like, you know, we'll show all the talent that we have up front and, you know, you can see everything about them, like when they're available, what their measurements are and it's you can sort of filter using like almost like e-commerce style user interface in a way so like you can say like you know i want men who are in london who have blue eyes or whatever and you can really really easily just send out a brief directly to all those models without like not have without having to involve an agency or anything like that and there's no real middleman sat in the way so like what happens is the booker goes on the website, chooses the models they're interested in. They provide some information about, you know, what the job is. And then basically we'll then send an email and a push notification to all of the models that they've chosen. And the model can just then say yes or no straight away. So they'll see all the information about the booker, like, you know, who they are, what they've worked on before, all the details of the job, where it's going to be, all that kind of thing. And then they can just immediately make a decision. So that's the kind of, inverse of it in that you know for a model you're quite often you've got a relationship with some kind of agency and they might just be making like arbitrary decisions in terms of like what jobs they put you forward for or you know what work you end up getting or even how much you're going to get paid so it puts a lot more of the control in the actual kind of talent's hands as opposed to you know some random agent who's sitting in the middle basically 
And also the other thing is that those agencies take commission from the models. So like if you're a model, it might be that you have like 40% of your income taken away basically by someone who sits in the middle between you and the booker. Instead, we charge like a booking fee to the person who's booking the models and the models get like the full amount of money for the job as they probably should be. So yeah, like that that's the kind of the, the two kind of problems that we're really trying to solve in terms of like giving more autonomy to talent and yeah like making it significantly easier to book talent and so like where we are now is basically we've had this like model product now for like about a year or so it's been been live and you know it does fairly well so like we've booked you know over a thousand jobs through it there's loads of models on the platform we've got like various third-party agencies who list their talent on contact as well and you know it's all going fairly well but what we've realized throughout this entire process is that like this problem that exists for booking models and you know models not having control of their own work is like also applicable to a lot of other creative disciplines particularly in the fashion industry so if you imagine you're like a makeup artist or you're a fashion photographer or you know a bunch of other disciplines in that industry there's like a lot of similar problems there and so what we're basically working on now is sort of retooling things a little bit so that we can offer that same service to you know all of these different creative disciplines as opposed to just models which i think is really exciting in terms of like really broadening the scope of the product right that is very exciting indeed it sounds like you've identified a problem that's not just ubiquitous to the model industry it's everyone in fashion for some reason traditional influencers come to mind and i think even though there are platforms out there i do wonder if they care about their talent as much as you guys do at contact that's really fascinating what's the feedback been like through well from the models and the bookers alike on on this uh business model that you've built generally really positive I do think like it's obviously somewhat jarring if you're used to having like an agency in the middle because particularly initially there was a lot of wariness and people are being like oh this is just like weird technology right like I've been doing this for the last 20 years in this way I don't understand why I should start doing this but like what we've actually realized is that once people actually start once people actually start using the product rather like it's they're basically hooked on it like we have like very high MPS scores and like people realize like oh shit this is actually like an enormous time saver because I'm not having to send out like hundreds of emails to get one single model or you know a couple of models and yeah I mean I think you know from the talent side it's the transparency thing which they mainly enjoy right in terms of they have full autonomy over what they can do as opposed to anything else so like on the whole pretty good generally it remains to be seen like what will happen when we when we add more talent to the platform and we add you know photographers and this kind of thing the way that we try and build these things is based on like extremely large amounts of user research so generally like before we'll commit to like you know designing and engineering an entire feature like we're going to go out and speak to a lot of potential customers to make sure that what we're doing is actually you know worthwhile which you know isn't a guarantee of product market fit but it's generally quite a good indication right so yeah like on the whole seems to be going pretty well yeah, that's really good to hear, man. Have you um, come across any of those supply versus demand issues that a lot of quote unquote marketplace startups come across, especially now that you are trying to attract photographers and makeup artists and things like that? It's a tricky one because I think the other thing is that like 
not everybody who comes into the platform is like necessarily looking for the right for the same thing right so like you know if you're nike you're going to have a radically different brief to say i don't know like maybe gap for example like there's different levels of talent required for all that kind of thing like something which we are trying to get significantly better at is sort of leveraging data around like so yeah like we want to try and get much better at like leveraging data to kind of try and match the supply and demand a little bit better so like we know for example that like if we've got a bunch of people who book a model who is male and six foot tall with you know whatever physical characteristics or is based in london or whatever we can say okay maybe like we need to offer more supply there so like what we'll do is we'll go out and we'll maybe find additional talent who can sit on the platform who like might also fill that brief right but i think yeah like it's difficult because like there's definitely certain types of people or certain like quote-unquote looks that people in the fashion industry go for and that again is quite cliquey so it's almost like you know some people are more likely to get booked than other people just based on like the current fashion trend at the time right but yeah it's an interesting one because like unlike most marketplaces like you know we really want to make sure that the talent that exists on the platform genuinely have a really really good time and like you know we want to be sensitive with how we scale in terms of like we don't want to just put 20,000 people on this platform right and then everybody has a rubbish time because they don't get any work so like in terms of like how we let people onto the platform we're doing it in quite like a phased way effectively where like we only allow small numbers of people on to make sure that like we don't end up with like a runaway supply and demand mismatch but yeah yeah not being greedy about growth and actually making sure that the experience is consistently good yeah by taking a, a slow growth approach i guess right exactly and like the numbers involved obviously for this kind of work are significantly higher than say like food delivery you know like the margins are significantly greater effectively because the sheer amount of money that's happening for say a modeling job or a photography job or whatever is not two pounds fifty it's significantly more so that kind of like relatively slow growth model is okay for now right in terms of like you know it still allows us to make a, a reasonable amount of money we do want to make sure that you know we start offering these services to everybody who wants them at some point in the future but it's just a case of like making sure that we do that in a controlled and, and staged and sensible way so yeah yeah incredible to hear how have you gone about creating a decent and enjoyable user experience for both ends. And I guess I'm tapping into your philosophy to product creation in a way here. Like, I guess, were there any models or frameworks that you guys used in order to make sure that you were building the best product and offering the best experience to both ends of that quote unquote marketplace, as I keep referring it to? (laughs) Yeah, so like the way that we kind of build products is we do a lot of user research up front, as I just mentioned. So Basically, what we'll do is we'll write a concept for, you know, some feature or some piece of functionality. And generally, like, before we even get to that point, we'll say, like, is it worth doing this? Like, what is the operational and time constraints of this entire thing? Like, is it going to take a million years to do and not actually make us that much money? Is there something which we can just buy off the shelf instead of, like, you know, choosing to build this entire thing, yada, yada, yada? But, like, assuming that it is something which we want to do, and we think it's valuable for the business, then we'll start doing a bunch of user research. And, you know, we now have like a decent pool of 
bookers and talent and you know various other groups of people who are interested in like actually providing feedback and testing the product so we'll typically call them up do a user research call be like you know we want to understand what it is that you're struggling with around this thing so like let's say for example payments so to tell them like are you frustrated by the time it takes you to get paid by bookers at the moment and the answer is obviously yes so like how can we go about building a better experience for that um, so we'll do like fairly extensive interviews about like what the current pain points are. From there, what we'll do, assuming that you know that has validated the the concept internally, what we'll do is we'll probably go ahead and start doing some wireframes and some designs around what that could potentially look like. So, you know, with payments, for example, we figure out like how we're going to collect bank details, how we're going to you know make sure that people get paid on time, how we're going to deal with notifications, messaging, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We'll kind of figure that out have a rough idea for what that looks like and from there what we'll do is we'll also do some technical exploration like we might do like a spike just to see like how technically complicated something is and after that like assuming that's all good we'll probably like move into engineering but again working with the designer so that you know like let's say there's something which doesn't really make a huge amount of sense the way that it's been wireframed in prototypes or whatever like we work in kind of a real like iterative style in two week cycles basically where like we're constantly trying to improve that feature until it's ready for release and then typically what we'll do is we'll release features to a relatively small chunk of people so during development like we release everything like multiple times a day to our staff so like let's say you know if there's some new feature we're in progress like if you're a contact staff member then you're going to see that on the website before it's even being finished effectively once it's kind of ready to go like once we've hit that kind of mvp threshold for a given bit of functionality we'll probably roll it out to you know say 20 percent of users see how it performs and that kind of like ties into like the most important part of it which is really measuring success you know we have a fairly sophisticated sort of business intelligence data set up so you know we collect lots and lots of information around you know user behavior and conversion rate and all these kind of different metrics, which we'll define upfront for a given, given feature. And yeah, basically try and make sure that we really, really nail down, like what are the success criteria for this thing? And if it looks like something's succeeding, then we'll roll it out to all of our users. Yeah, that's kind of the, the approach we try and take is like a concept to production, but like with a fairly kind of smooth pipeline for all this stuff. It sounds very deliberate and, yeah, very well-phased. I'm quite interested to learn more about the user research process. And I guess, more specifically, what kind of information do you look like from that user base when you go about having those conversations? Are there any indicators that you look for? And how do you go about actually eliciting that information from them? Basically, we, we typically interview our own customers. So like we'll have a decent idea of who they are in terms of like, you know, we know that you're Tom, you've booked three jobs through the platform in the past, you work for a shoe company, whatever, right? And what we'll typically do is like, when we go into the user research kind of processes, we'll do, basically, we'll come up with a list of people that we think would be good to talk to about the feature, which will be generally from a fairly diverse set of backgrounds in terms of where they work, you know, the size of the organization that they're working for, the kind of jobs they book, all this kind of thing, just to try and get like a, as broad a spread as possible, basically, in terms of, you know, the people that we're interviewing. So yeah, then what will happen is we'll basically, we'll typically have like an interview format. So depending on like what the feature is, we'll have a list of questions that we want to go through. 
to basically establish you know how they currently use other products see what what our competitors are doing see what you know their opinion of our product is currently as well in terms of how it does a given thing and what we might do then is if we have them we might basically present them with some wireframes so what we'll do is we'll ask them to visit a website which is in development or you know we'll share some figma prototypes or whatever with that person and basically kind of get their impressions get their first impressions on you know what they think of that product and try not to influence them in any way which i think is obviously one of the hardest hardest things in terms of like the temptation when you're in a user research session to basically just go like yeah it's that button there but obviously you don't want to do that because you don't want to influence people you know it's enormously helpful in terms of seeing what's working from a user experience point of view and what's not but also whether conceptually the entire like product idea actually makes sense and works yeah exactly trying to give them as much guidance without forcing them to a conclusion right exactly right like yeah i mean we, we try not to be too kind of prescriptive in terms of you know what we think about our concepts or you know like what, you know, we didn't try and push people down a certain avenue right like if they genuinely think it's awful then we want them to tell us that so yeah amazing well thank you for spilling the beans on uh, your entire process there super super fascinating i've got a couple more questions before i let you go and this next one is around poolside because when i reached out to you it was because I, yeah, took notice of contact and I had no idea that you were behind Poolside itself. And it's one of my favorite apps on the internet, much like a lot of people out there now. It's become a little bit of a web app darling among the product hunt crowd. I'd love to hear about if you have any insight into it, how the idea came about and why you guys decided to choose like the aesthetic that you did, that kind of retro cellular <laughs> design set, shall we say. Sure. So I got involved with Pulsar about a year ago. So I built all of the kind of mobile app side of it. So I can mainly tell you about that. And like, it is a very aesthetic. And I think like, you know, the reason why we kind of decided to go for that, that kind of look is that a lot of the music on Pulsar is like from the 80s, like, right? Like, or, you know, it's got that kind of like Miami Beach kind of like, Baywatch 1980s <laughs> right? It's like kind yeah. of cheesy, all that kind of thing. And so the aesthetic that we basically wanted to reproduce for the mobile app was like a Nokia 3210, basically. The old style like monochrome phones, which kind of mirrors like what we did on desktop, right? Because like on the desktop web experience, it's like an old version of Mac OS. Like if we wanted the iPhone version to be like a really old phone. So yeah, like we decided for that to basically make everything monochrome. Like obviously you can switch between different colors on the Poolside iOS app, but that's basically still just two colors. So yeah, like that's where the aesthetic comes from. It's like designed to be like a really old school phone, but modernized in such a way that like you can use modern user interface or UX patterns basically, right? So like if you think about like the swipe mechanic that exists in the poolside iOS app, like that's obviously not a thing because touchscreens weren't a thing. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, like, Literal buttons to press on the screen, right? right. <laughs> but yeah, like it's kind of like creating an interesting hybrid between like that very 90s user interface and like a slightly more modern kind of like gesture-based, touch-based UI effectively. Amazing. How did you kind of go about blending those two technologies i guess for lack of a better word together was there like a research process where you had to like pick up old school nokia phones and have a play around with them to think about how it would work with a touch screen or um 
I think like we did a lot of prototyping in code, but like so Nick Decker, who did all the designs, who is an amazing designer, basically yeah, just, clearly. <laughs> just the, the the weirdest thing was that like you can't use modern design software to design something in that way anymore. If you try and use like Figma to build like a bitmap user interface, it just doesn't work. So it was kind of like a bit of a blast of the past for both of us, I think, because like all the design was done in Photoshop, which like I haven't like used for doing user interface design in a long time. So yeah, so like we did that and then basically we just started like plumbing bits of the UI into uh, React Native, which is what the Poolside iOS app is actually built in. And like that allowed us to sort of prototype things very, very quickly in terms of like, you know, what does this gesture-based UI look like? What does, you know, what do the animations look like? How do we make this look like it's old, given that we can't have any kind of like opacity in this at all? Like it has to be like either black or white, right? So yeah, like it was kind of a mixture of like those initial designs that Nick did in Photoshop and then like playing around with that, like basically playing around with that in code to get the kind of like navigation and the UX just right. So it looks so simple, but clearly so much work went into the execution of it, hey? Yeah, it's kind of weird. Like, I mean, a lot of like programming environments and software these days don't make it easy for you to build that kind of user interface anymore. <laughs> right. So yeah, like it, it's quite interesting how much sort of like butchery of like existing frameworks and software we had to do in order to kind of get that look, right? Um, like even just like turning off anti-aliasing on all the text, which you're not meant to do anymore because it makes it harder to read. Like, <laughs> okay. Know, that kind of thing. What do you think was behind the app's initial success? Because you joined in order to build the mobile and the desktop app. I know that there was a web version. Was there like a tipping point where it generated the majority of its users and became super popular? And what do you think it was that helped to do that? I mean, I think like a lot of its early success, just a lot of it came through Twitter and just like viral sharing, basically. People people just like that vibe, right? You know, like it's just a genuinely unique website to go to. So, I mean, like there's not really anything else that exists, which is like that polished. And, you know, again, that's kudos to Neek and Lewis King who did the, the kind of uh, web engineering for that kind of thing as to how to what it looks like and you know also like the music is genuinely really good which i think is the main reason that people go to it which is all marty's kind of curation work so i think yeah like it's just because there's not really anything else that exists like that right like it's very very unique and i think you know that made it a lot lot easier to you know get decent traction on the the ios app right so like we knew that a lot of people have been asking for this for a long time like Marty's DMs were basically filled with people going like mobile app when. And, <laughs> I see. Yeah. And so like, we, we knew that like, you know, like he'd been trying to build it for quite some time. And so like eventually when we did eventually get around to doing it, like we knew that it would be a pretty easy sell to get it out to like loads and loads of people. And yeah, like it, it did pretty well pretty much off the bat. Like we got good coverage on Product Hunt and other places like that. So yeah. Yeah. Excellent work, mate. Very good work indeed. I still, you know, open the app up when I'm in the car and connect it to the Bluetooth still to this day. It's like, especially when the, the weather's a bit glum, it is the perfect summer simulation app, right. you know? Yeah. <laughs> awesome, man. So before I let you go, one last question. What are you working on right now that you are most jazzed about? What are you excited about right now? Honestly, most of the contact stuff. Like, I think 
where we're going with all all of this work in terms of like offering the contact platform to a lot more people really excites me just because like the feedback that we get from models and from people who book models is so basically universally positive that like that really really drives me to work on more stuff and i think like giving more people that experience and genuinely making it easier for people to you know make a living through those creative industries is like really exciting to me so yeah all that stuff is is really what i'm looking forward to doing over the next you know year and more plus also scaling that team right is an interesting challenge like we've gone from basically two engineers to now a team of tech of like 10 people in that tech team in the space of about a year and like you know watching that grow as well as we move towards like series a and raising more money and that kind of thing is is like super exciting for me yeah it certainly sounds it and i'll be i'll be watching and following along with uh, what you guys build josh it's been a pleasure where can people learn a little bit more about you and connect with you i am twitter.com slash jushmuk j-s-h-m-c which is not very very good for uh, <laughs> sharing in podcasts but yeah there you go don't worry we'll, we'll have show notes <laughs> yeah and that's me you can find me on linkedin just look for josh mcmullen perfect josh thank you so much it's been a pleasure you too man Thanks for listening. Before you dash, just a quick note to share a free ebook we just published called the Content Operations Playbook. If you're interested in content marketing and SEO, then this ebook is for you. We lift the hood up on our own editorial and content production processes from hiring writers, creating solid content briefs, polishing content to be the best it can be, and of course, distributing it to actually generate traffic. It's totally free and you can download it over at grizzle.io forward slash content ops. That's www.grizzle.io forward slash content ops. And hey, if you enjoy this podcast, feel free to subscribe. We've got a lot of great conversations lined up with experts in the world of business, marketing, and entrepreneurship coming up. Thanks again.